I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Okay, so welcome everyone. Today we're going to just be exploring the final story of Liber Primus, which is called Resolution. And it's exceedingly dense once again, and so we're going to do our best to wrestle with it. I'm going to start uh, at request just with a very little bit, hopefully, because again, we could go on for hours, about the origin of the name of the Salome Institute, which is extremely relevant to all of this and who Salome is, known as Salome. I think more European pronunciation is Salome. But man, it's such a huge question. I think I'm going to say very briefly, the main thing is that when Jung encounters Salome, which he did in our last gathering and does again in this, he perceives her fundamentally as being the temptress, the sort of seductress who is responsible for the murder of John the Baptist, the prophet. And it is just filled with revulsion that he's encountering her in his own psyche. But the critical reclamation of that and his ability, and for me, it's to see it not from the patriarchy, the patriarchal telling of who Salome is, but from an embodied human telling of who Salome is, which Uh, And again, this is where I could go off in tangents forever. But what I imagine is a 16-year-old woman who's trapped between her mother's demands and her her stepfather's requests, these kind of lust-filled requests for her to dance. So her mother feels disempowered as this woman who's married to the king, but is not her, John the Baptist is not recognizing that marriage as a legitimate marriage. And so she feels hatred and anger towards John the Baptist. And she asks her daughter who her her husband is attracted to when she is asked to dance for him and therefore turns into this temptress, according to uh, the the Christian history that she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist when King Herod says that you can ask for anything you want if you dance. So then Salome is left with this story in Christian storytelling of being this temptress whore who killed John the Baptist. In fact, she was powerless the entire time and was not the one who, in fact, beheaded John the Baptist. That was King Herod's request, and he sent his men out to do it. So it's this completely mixed telling. And in Jung's own psyche, he's going down to recover this image. We're not going to, I mean, that doesn't show up in resolution, which is the story for today. Um, And again, I've only told 2% of it, right? But But the critical part of it, which we're going to see today and then see next week. So next week, we're starting Liber Segundus with the story of the red one. Um, It's the first chapter in in the second book. And it's this exploration of what, for Jung, pleasure is, love is, 
the feminine is, joy, and how all those things, as they are in Christian history, mixed up with the idea of evil. So it's a careful shifting and a careful pulling apart of what is considered evil, and in fact, what the definition of evil is, which is huge, right? What is evil? What is shadow? What is darkness? What is the other side? And is it in fact evil, as we typically understand it? Is it in fact bad, as we typically understand it to be? And if we can really start to break down these understandings of good and evil, it also helps us to completely shift what our projections on to nature, other humans are, if the feminine and evil are all wrapped up and bound because of male psychology, which has written history over time, things start to get very interesting when all of that turns into um, a mixed bag of projection and, and misunderstanding. So, and this gets into the question of forethinking and pleasure. So throughout, and I'm going to let Carol jump in here because this is where we're going to start with the section for today, resolution. This dichotomy between forethinking and pleasure, you know, it really is fundamentally the logic and the, you know, it's the rational and the irrational brain. For I don't honestly know what the original German is for forethinking, and I would love if somebody does, because that gets us all into kind of why the words were chosen. But, but you know, do you know it, Anne? I'm looking it up right now in the red book. I have the German. Yeah. Okay. So let us know, or we'll do it in question and answer, because we have a lot to tackle. Right. Okay, Carol. So listen, that was still a short preamble for everything to those <laughs> questions. We can go on for hours. But Carol, do you want to start us off for resolution today where we're at? All right. So to start us off for resolution, I'm going to show you the horoscope of the third night. So you will recall that we were, that last time we were talking about and what we're looking at here is we're looking at Carl Jung's horoscope, natal horoscope in the center, the sun and Leo opposite Aquarius rising. And around the outside is the astrology of the night of the third night, the, the resolution. So it really, the astrology really shows us the two major things that we're talking about today, which is resolution of polarities and crucifixion, this idea that not just some happy ending or some dissolving of tension, but the real challenge of consciousness and integration in the, in the context of a habit of splitting and not owning what is hard to live with. So in Jung's chart, the sun in Leo in astrology, Leo is the golden time of year. It's August, it's high summer, and the energy of Leo, the lion, is to be at the center, to be hot, to be at the center. And 180 degrees opposite from Leo is the time of year, Aquarius, in which the days are slowly, slowly beginning to get longer after the darkness and the death and the rigidity of winter. The Chinese say about this time of year, nature in her generosity is pouring water back into the system. And so Aquarius, where the sun is the center, the sun in Leo, a double image of centeredness, the heart of everything, Aquarius is at the edge of things. And I, I have to thank the wonderful astrologer, Sean Nygaard in Minnesota, 
I had a chance to preview his upcoming article about Saturn and Aquarius, and uh, which is the time we find ourselves in. And he talks about the contrast of the center of something to the edge of something. And how, how do we find ourselves? How do we come to terms with this, our centers and our edges, including what's foreign or what's cast out or what's on the outside or what makes you an outsider? So here on this third night, Christmas, the Christmas night, 1913, he's had the dream of the flood of Europe. He's split himself off. He's killed his hero. He's now been able to encounter a feminine soul and Elijah, a prophet who had, there's a certain amount of psychic trust and insight as a result of that. And he has brought to his own polarity and his own cross. I would just observe parenthetically as I was getting ready for this, um, I, I had um, accidentally put his chart and the third night resolution chart with today. And I am, for those of you who are astrologically inclined, you will see that there's the most incredible, not surprisingly, repetition of our energy of what we're in right now, the us studying this, us grasping this, us trying to emerge from the center of something to the periphery of something to, to find our own agency and not just the agency of the Saturnian father or, or the delegation of our centers to someone else. So I was accidentally so struck by the similarities of where, where we are right now. Carol, before you, can you go back to that and just highlight one thing for us, just one of those convergence points that strikes you? So the thing that strikes me the most of all is that we've had in the, since, really since 2008, this is repetitious for some of you who have been here, since September of 2008, we have had the, the beginning of a long period of contraction. What we could say is winter. Capricorn is the sign of winter. And the job of winter is to close. The dark closes around the light and keeps the light alive and safe to prepare for the time when the days lengthen and the light can go and grow again. So after a very long period of contraction that intensified starting in January of 2018, this is the energy that thinks of building walls and of making something other. Brexit is a really great example of this, the trying to build the, the walls at the border between the United States and Canada and Mexico is a great out-picturing example of this collective energy. And it collected and grew stronger and stronger and stronger in November of 2019, and here we are in early 2020 with the maximum contraction and the, the sort of explosive, in a way, destructive force of the contraction. But after the contraction comes expansion. And after years and years and years of expansion, we might realistically have expected a contraction. It's like breathing. And so what I'm most struck by is after this long period of contraction, which includes Jung's haunted nights for him personally, for us as people, as a globe, where we now 
don't just have the picture of the blue marble spinning in space, this abstract image that we're all one, but that we're in a time in which the collapse of systems that have kept us separate have made us truly, truly see how we are all connected. And that out of that collapse of a former structure, we're at the frontier or the edge or the periphery of something else that might happen that has to do with the resolution of the tension of the opposites. So Saturn's going to retrograde back into Capricorn in the middle of this year before it finally enters uh, Aquarius for the next two and a half years at the end of, of this year, 2020. But I am, it, it was the thing that when we began studying and we began looking at it and I, you know, I said to myself, gee, I wonder what the astrology of this event was that I was so, so struck by the, the, the event for Jung is our event. Um, so that's what strikes me the most. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So do you want me to just tee this up? Well, yeah, I mean, there's so, so just to begin, right? So we're on page 194 for folks who have the same English edition as we do. Um, and when Carol's speaking of the third night, it starts here on the third night deep longing to continue experiencing the mystery seized me. So Carol, let's just begin there. If you want to just tell the story a bit of what he encounters. So I'm just going to summarize this so that we can get to more exploration of the themes that get teed up here. But essentially on the third night, a deep longing to continue experiencing the mysteries seized me. And so here you have in his horoscope, this strong, the 12th house journey into the infinite. He's encountered Elijah and Salome, and he encounters Elijah's on a peak, and below Elijah, in front of Jung, two serpents are in a battle, a black serpent and a white serpent. And later on, he says that it was my will that provoked the huge uproar among the diamonds. Um, and of course, those of you who are familiar with the images of Kundalini Yoga are very familiar with the two snakes that wind up to, the, to create the third place of transcendence. Then Elijah comes down from the peaks and he beckons Jung to follow down into a dark cave where Mime, who is the malevolent dwarf of the, of, of the Nordic, um, big Nordic myths, who forges the ring of power, lives, and Jung won't follow and instead he goes to Elijah's house and the serpents follow him anyway. And he says to Elijah, when the serpents battled, the black one came away with some white in him and the white one came away with some black in him. And Jung is whining about Salome and how, what a monstrous person she is. And Elijah says, I love this translation. How <laughs> impetuous you are, impetuous you are. What is up with you? Step over to the crystal and prepare yourself in its light. And Jung goes on later to see, to say, the symbol of the crystal signifies the unalterable law of events that comes of itself. In this seed, you grasp what is to come. Then he goes on to find himself in Salome's presence in which, Sal, in which a, a serpent is squeezing him and he has a lion head and there is a very powerful image from the Mithraic and Zoroastrian traditions that much, much older, much, much, much older than certainly than Jung's time or other times 
So here is the snake wrapped around him with the lion's head around him. And of course, in this, he's surrounded by the zodiac. But the other, the other part of this image is that he is, he, when Salome says, you are Christ, he stands with outstretched arms like someone crucified. And this is the grand cross. And in the process of the crucifixion, Salome recovers her sight. Again, where do we even begin, right? There's so many images in this. And I think what we are going to, to focus on is, is sort of less of the image and more of this complex philosophy that Jung is trying to put forward about this union of opposites, right? But it really, I mean, this ending on page 197, where Salome, is, Salome says to him, you are Christ. And Jung is confused and resisting. This is getting in again to, it just builds throughout the whole Red Book, but what Jung means by um, the imitation of Christ and this attempt to unify the opposites and become God, become human and divine in ourselves over and over again. And the union, the union of opposites. And so what we're getting into over and over and over is the feminine, the masculine, the yin and the yang, the forethinking and pleasure, love versus logic, and how that is the journey that Christ took in the end, and that Salome is demanding that he undertake that. Carol, what do you think if we, I mean, I'm just aware of how much there is in in starting at 202, but do you want to say more about these images before we move on? I think all of this is his imagery and his arrival at the possibility of the union of opposites is presenting itself to him in terms of the imagery, the surrender, the crucifixion, um, I don't remember who it was who who told us about their dream in which they were on a cross. You know, he, it, what we'll see as we get into book two is all of the mandalas that he created that are really expressions of how do you integrate yourself at the center of polarities? How do you pull directions to yourself? How do you stay balanced in them? And I so I think the the narrative up to this point, up to 202, is really you know, him sort of recapitulating his experiences. So, so let's go, let's go. And I mean, again, what you said about the Kundalini, these images of the snakes, it begins the, the start, I think of the Holy Grail is the dragons, the, the, is it the red and white, a red and white dragon fighting, you know, but all of these different images throughout history that Jung's very familiar with, and they're showing up here in his dreams. He's trying to intellectually understand them. There's this moment where he says, Elijah asks him, do you understand what we're showing you? And he says, I'm trying to. He says, I notice, Elijah, that you have shown me and let me experience all sorts of strange things and allowed me to come before you today. But I confess that it is all dark to me. Your world appears to me today in a new light. Just now it was as if I was separated by a starry distance from your place, which I still wanted to reach today. But behold, it seems to me to be one in the same place. Elijah says, you wanted to come here far too much. I did not deceive you. You deceived yourself. He sees badly who wants to see. You have overreached yourself. Jung's wrestling with trying to understand these images and his desire to transform and his struggle in transforming. And and you, again, can just feel his humanness in all of this. And so what he ends up, and Elijah really says to him, you need to listen to everything we're doing. And where we get to at the end of resolution here is that all of this becomes a precursor 
all of his understanding, all of his philosophical background, all of his theological training ends up being a precursor to the second book where the stories all start to happen differently. And he has to physiologically experience what he understands intellectually. And that's kind of what Elijah, the forethinking figure, is saying. You've got to go do this. There is no way to just do this intellectually. That's why it's a cross. If you're going to get to the crux of it, you've got to go into it. Yeah. I just would observe parenthetically. Yeah. It's what we're doing. It's what this time has brought us to. Yeah. Well, and that's why the section that we're going to read feels so critical because it really is. And the reason it excites me um, is because it gets us straight into what is the point of suffering. And Jung is going to get really confusing here for a while um, because he's, he's essentially, as I'm going to read this, he's saying you not only don't want to avoid the difficulty and the evil, you want to enhance it and, and pour yourself into it and make the evil greater and greater And it's very confounding, again, if we're only stuck on this idea of good and evil and good being what we want and evil being what we don't. He's disrupting that entire thing and saying, we need to, in fact, be forced to see everything that is terrible, which is so much of what we're confronted with right now in this moment in history. And it, I think, creates a little bit of solace, ironically, that, again, there's a path here, that Jung was identifying this path, laying out this path for us. So I'm going to start at 202 and read for a while. The footnotes in this last several pages, there's so much content in these footnotes. Much of this, I'll say, is pulled from other drafts that Jung had been working on that did not make it into the final calligraphic version of the Red Book but that Sonu Shamdasani, the editor of the Red Book, um, and the translators pulled forward from these different drafts and laid them out. So there's a lot of this extraordinary content that didn't get included, but we have here in our translation. Okay, and last thing, Carol, do you want to tee us up again for Spirit of the Times and Spirit of the Depths, the meanings of this, so people can hear those as we get into it? The longer I have done astrology, the more I see that the horoscope, really a map of an arrival into a dimension, that part of the horoscope shows us that we live here in the in the newtonian world of measurement and and embodiment and and time but that we also stand in relationship to timelessness and so the this is what jung has has come to at a crossroads at an intersection is there is the spirit of the times the times that we're in but that we as we come to this place it makes it possible for us to encounter timelessness out of which something else and something new is possible. Beautiful. Thank you. So he speaks to the spirit of this time and there's a quality of that being what he's familiar with and comfortable with. Um, The spirit of the depths is more of the soulful unconscious space that then starts to teach him later. Okay. 202. The spirit of this time has condemned us to haste. You have no more futurity and no more past if you serve the spirit of this time. We need the life of eternity. We bear the future and the past in the depths. The future is old and the past is young. You serve the spirit of this time and believe that you are able to escape the spirit of the depths, but the depths do not hesitate any longer and will force you into the mysteries of Christ. It belongs to this mystery that man is not redeemed through the hero, but becomes a Christ himself. 
The antecedent example of the saints symbolically teaches us this. So again, Jung is never joining the idea of being a prophet himself or truly Christ or, or the second coming. He's saying this is an archetypal image that we all have possible within us. The, the spirits showed us, or the saints showed us, Christ showed us. Whoever wants to see will see badly. And that's what Elijah was telling him. It was my will that deceived me. It was my will that provoked the huge uproar among the diamonds. Should I therefore not want anything? I have, and I have fulfilled my will as well as I could, and thus I fed everything in me that strived. In the end, I found that I wanted myself in everything, but without looking for myself. Therefore, I no longer wanted to seek myself outside of myself, but within. Then I wanted to grasp myself, and then I wanted to go on again without knowing what I wanted, and thus I fell into the mystery. Should I therefore not want anything anymore? You wanted this war. That is good. If you had not, then the evil of this war would be small. But with your wanting, you make the evil great. If you do not succeed in producing the greatest evil out of this war, you will never learn the violent deed and learn to overcome fighting what lies outside you. Therefore, it is good if you want this greatest evil with your whole heart. You are Christians and run after heroes and wait for redeemers who should take the agony on themselves for you and totally spare you Golgotha. With that, you pile up a mountain of Calvary over all Europe. If you succeed in making a terrible evil out of this war and throw innumerable victims into the abyss, this is good, since it makes each of you ready to sacrifice himself. For as I, you draw close to the accomplishment of Christ's mystery. You already feel the fist of the iron one on your back. This is the beginning of the way. If blood, fire, and the cry of distress fill this world, then you will recognize yourself in your acts. Drink your fill of the bloody atrocities of the war. Feast upon the killing and destruction. Then your eyes will be open. You will see that you yourselves are the bearers of such fruit. You are on the way if you will all, if you will all this. Willing creates blindness and blindness leads to the way. Should we will error? You should not, but you do will that error which you take for the best truth as men have always done. The symbol of the crystal signifies the unalterable law of events that comes of itself. In this seed, you grasp what is to come. I saw something terrible and incomprehensible. It was on the night of Christmas Day of the year 1913. I saw the peasant's boot, the sign of the horrors of the peasant war, of murdering incendiaries and of bloody cruelty. I knew to interpret the sign for myself as nothing but the fact that something bloody and dreadful lay before us. I saw the foot of a giant that crushed a whole city. How could I interpret this sign otherwise? I saw the way that the way to self-sacrifice began here. They will all become terribly enraptured by these tremendous experiences and in their blindness will want to understand them as outer events. It is an inner happening. That is the way to the perfection of the mystery of Christ, 
so that peoples learn self-sacrifice. May the frightfulness become so great that it can turn men's eyes inward so that their will no longer seeks the self in others, but in themselves. I'm going to pause there, but I'm going to also now read, and and then we'll all discuss this, the um, footnote 235. So Jung wrote this in in 1918. He says, The spectacle of this catastrophe threw man back on himself by making him feel his complete impotence. It turned him inward, and with everything rocking, he seeks something that guarantees him a hold. Too many still seek outward, but still too few seek inward to their own selves, and still fewer ask themselves whether the ends of human society might not best be served if each man tries to abolish the old order in himself and to practice in his own person and his own inward state those precepts, those victories which he preaches at every street corner instead of always expecting these things of his fellow men. I just want to add something about this idea of, of, of the cross, of the crucifixion, and because this is really, these are the elements of, of the crux of the crucifixion. And of the astrological grand cardinal cross, there's a really remarkable theosophist from the 1920s, Alice Bailey, who is still today one of the few astrologers who's writing about the Grand Crosses, which is what we see in, in, Jung, in Jung's experience of this time. And because she was profoundly Christian, she, she thought of the cosmos as an ensouled place in which essentially each of the planets was a set of embodied divine rays and that the, the cosmos was this constant mobile interpenetration of, of emissions. And in that thought, she thought that the astrological experience of coming to a time when there were four planets opposite each other in the cardinal signs, cardinality meaning to be at the source, there are three possible crosses astrologically. There's a grand mutable cross in the mutable signs. There's a grand fixed cross in the fixed signs and a grand cardinal cross. And she thought that in the horoscope, a grand mutable cross and a grand fixed cross were the thieves crucified with Christ on Golgotha. And that they symbolized in a person's life an introduction to the, the possibility of, of a not a dual world, but a world in which spirit lived in matter. That it was in the grand mutable cross, an introduction. In the grand fixed cross, the realization that spirit is crucified in matter and that you have to balance between the self and the not self and the grand cardinal cross she thought was christ and that 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 sacrifice to give that to to crucify the self and to suffer in order to bring a larger spirit in the spirit of the depths eternity rather than the spirit of the times was a, a a very powerful signature so if any of you if anyone is interested in her work, she, um, she has a couple of really wonderful books about the Grand Crosses in her books on esoteric astrology. Alice Bailey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the other, the thing that really stands out to me in all this is, I think there's, this has come up in other salons, but this idea of the inner versus outer, I feel like gets a little bit confused because it, it starts to suggest that we should all become monks and that that is the path. 
And in fact, it's not really what Jung's expressing, right? It, this, all these words end up twisting us up because they, they get too concrete. But it's about what you just expressed. I mean, it's crucifying the self versus crucifying the brother, so to speak. And that's everything Jung is trying to say is that we do our own work, but our own work might also be outer work. It, you know, it's the retraction of projection. It's the, it's the wrestling within relationship. It's, the, it's not just meditating on your cushion, right? It is being in relationship. It is, it is dealing with our reactions and reactivity. It is getting self-aware in those ways. And that may involve things like meditation. It may involve active imagination, certainly, which was a huge part of Jung's journey. That's what we're doing with, with these visions. But it's not a disengagement from society in the classic kind of more Eastern understanding of things, right? Um, and no, we no, get no. into that more later on as well. But I, I think the way you put it with the crucifixion of Christ feels so relevant, of course. I mean, it's the shifting of the personal to the divine. Well, and I, you know, you and I, Satya and I agreed we wouldn't go on this very possible detour with the idea of, of brain hemispheres, but, but it, it's not inner outer in the sense of, of being divisive. It's how, it's not pay attention to this, not this. It's what is the nature of the attention you are bringing to things? Because the left hemisphere names and and lists, and the right hemisphere is gestalt. And the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres moves information both in an excitatory way and an inhibitory way to move our sense and our naming back and forth. And what, what Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and His Emissary, describes in this idea of hemispheric function is consciousness plays a role, your attention, the consciousness and attention that you bring to things changes it. It changes not just your experience, it changes the whole. So what Jung is talking about here when he talks about self-sacrifice is give up the manner in which you have brought your attention to, to the wholeness of things and see how things live in an integrated relationship with each other. To your point, not go sit on a, on a, a pillow, although good, you know, nothing, it, it's one way, but this idea of how we change our attention and how through the change in our attention, we make the world is what I think what this is about. Yeah, that there's, you know, that, that Jung throughout this journey is reclaiming his artistic side, right? That's a, there's a whole section of the history of this in which he gets the insight or the fear that he is in fact making art and he doesn't want to be making art. You know, he doesn't want to be a mystic. He doesn't want to be an artist. He wants to be a scientist, but all this stuff is getting jostled. And by re-engaging with Salome, discovering this horrifying image of Salome and re-engaging her, there's all these different ways that we see Jung reclaiming this other form of attention, this other form of relationship. He's re-engaging with love and pleasure and joy and sweetness in all of these different ways, which again, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks in particular. But it's, it's like he's re-establishing contact with his right brain after years and years of not having much contact there, right? Like that's part of this journey. And what we agreed, you know, we don't want to get reductive. Like we're not neuroscientists and, and we don't want to fall back into kind of new age. Oh, we, we all suddenly are neuroscientists because we read a book, right? <laughs> right. But, 
but that there is some fundamental truth about what what form of consciousness we foster in society and what forms of consciousness we reject. And this is a, an attempt to come back to a sense of wholeness by developing dialogue. And again, that's the androgen, it's the masculine feminine, it's the, you know, the yin yang, the left, right, the whole thing starts coming together. Yeah. Carol, what do you love most about that section? I mean, what strikes you of this section that I just read? What, what stands out to you for this time that we're in in particular? The crucifixion of matter, where he started, you know, where he says back here, the spirit of this time has condemned us to haste. And, you know, when you when you think about the conversations, the Zoom conversations or the phone or FaceTime conversations we're all having with each other, one of the things everyone says is, my sense of time has changed. I don't know what time it is. You know, that the regularization and the habit of perception about the nature and the function and the purpose and the opportunity of time in this time is not very functional anymore. I mean, we're all here at 10 o'clock. We all still have watches. The sun, you know, it's spring. So it isn't that we don't know where we are, but that the crucifixion of embodiment, matter, and time, the structures by which we have said, this is the world that we live in. They're still there, but we've, we've been brought to a different way to be in relationship with them. And that out of being, therefore, at the edge of something and moving away from something and towards something, not towards a new version of what we've already been living in, but to really begin to use our imaginations and to investigate possibility instead of staying rigidified in the past. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all these planets in Capricorn leading into Aquarius, you know, that we are at, we're, we're at a frontier. And we, at least no one alive, has been here before. Mm-hmm. It isn't that other human beings haven't lived through times like this. They have, you know, those of you who are fans of Rick Tarnas and his book Cosmos and Psyche, he so beautifully outlines other times like this in history. So we could certainly learn from history in the same way we can learn from Jung. But history and Jung say to us, we can show you, but you have to do it. And your experience isn't going to be that. Yeah. So I'm going to continue reading a bit because I think it, it just keeps to emphasize these points. And in fact, I think what I'll do, Carol, is just read because it's most of this next three pages is footnotes. So I'm going to read oh, yeah. the text itself. Um, again, we're really emphasizing he's not giving a checklist. He's not giving concrete explanations. This is, this is what you need to do to develop yourself. This is what you need to do to reclaim your shadow. This is what you need to do to re-encounter the feminine or the right brain. But he's expressing the experiential complexity of this journey. And I think with the images that we all, um, we're all going to have our own individual hits of how this stands out to us or resonates for us or feels like this moment in history that we're in. And, and again, I think what he's really emphasizing is if it doesn't get really, really bad, nobody wakes up, you know, mm-hmm. and it really reminds me of what nightmares serve in sleep and in, in consciousness that there is a way that our nightmares wake us up or our nightmares when we're having them really electrify that something is wrong. You know, something is wrong with the system. The system is unhappy, is out of balance, is terrified. Something is happening. And then it wakes us up. 
And that the same thing is happening in society right now. There is a fundamental level of horror and terror and catastrophe that is global. And Jung is expressing this in relation to the world wars, World War I, saying if it doesn't get really, really bad, people don't wake up. So I'll just finish the reading here. So if people want to follow along, I'm starting on page 205, and we'll just read to the end of, of the first book. He says, but fundamentally, you are terrified of yourself, and therefore you prefer to run to all others rather than to yourself. I saw the mountain of the sacrifice and the blood poured in streams from its sides. When I saw how pride and power satisfied men, how beauty beamed from the eyes of women when the great war broke out, I knew that mankind was on the way to self-sacrifice. The spirit of the depths has seized mankind and forces self-sacrifice upon it. Do not seek the guilt here or there. The spirit of the depths clutched the fate of man unto itself as it clutched mine. He leads mankind through the river of blood to the mystery. In the mystery, man himself becomes the two principles, the lion and the serpent. Because I also want my being other, I must become a Christ. I am made into Christ. I must suffer it. Thus the redeeming blood flows. Through the self-sacrifice, my pleasure is changed and goes above into its higher principle. Love is sighted, but pleasure is blind. Both principles are one in the, in the symbol of the flame. The principles strip themselves of human form. The mystery showed me in images what I should afterward live. I did not possess any of these boons that the mystery showed me, for I still had to earn all of them. It's a cliffhanger for the second book, for the rest Boy, of what to come. He said, and now I have to live it. Yeah, and that's where we are. That's where we are. We still have to earn it. I feel like I'm looking forward to the second book, to, to getting started in these stories, because I think the last two salons, I just feel so overwhelmed by all that's on our plate to dive into that I get a little anxious or something when we start getting into this because I don't know where to go. So, um, you know, what's coming is so much more storytelling in a way, right? The red one and then the castle in the forest and the anchorite and the lowly. We're getting into all these stories that start coming. So there's some relief I have that we're done with the first <laughs> book because um, I just can feel this kind of, oof, you know. Well, this is a lot of machinery, what we've yeah. been reading. And I don't mean to make it less by saying that no you know to see how he got his arms around everything and you know i i'm continuously struck not only by the christian iconography but thinking about the lessons of the buddha you know of the of what the buddha brought himself to you know siddhartha you think about the journey of siddhartha and i think about arjuna about to go to war with his brother and that this isn't the this isn't just the province of the west that this is deep 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 in our nature and um richard Rohr, the franciscan has been last week um featured a lot about uh, Teresa of avia and uh saint john of the cross mm. about the meaning of suffering not not trying not trying to you know cheer anybody up or or, or the idea that it promises to lead to something else, but the necessity to come to this 
stage. And then what's interesting that why the stories are interesting that are coming up and why the images are so amazing is because that we can metabolize them right hemisphere metabolizing we can get the gestalt of it and it comes down into our bodies in a way that all the language begins to prepare us for but doesn't really get at mm -hmm. and and um it's not just that it's easier or 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 more beautiful or more palatable although all of those things are true it's that we're able to receive it in a way that this is takes a lot of different kinds of processes and, and dialogue. I, I heard a lecture, I heard someone, maybe it was yesterday, talking about the Leonard Schlein book, The Alphabet and the Goddess, which essentially the theory of that book is that in the goddess ages, the right hemisphere was dominant and it was all images and the left hemisphere was, was the patriarchal ages and language. And I had a young man in the middle of all of that pick the book up. I had it sitting there and he opened it up and he paged through it and he closed it and he said, no pictures. <laughs> you know, and so, so going to pictures is, is the next place. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that pretty soon too, we really get into Jung's extraordinary art. I mean, more and more, right? That it's not just captured in these little frames throughout the calligraphy, but it really starts to take over and you can feel that his own development is moving more and more in that direction. And it's stunning to bear witness to. Boy, yeah. I'd like to say before we go to questions, mm -hmm. I think, I think all of us, I, I may, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself are moved um, to uh, really to helpless tears on almost a daily basis at what is at what we read about, about how others are suffering. And that a part, I think, of suffering is empathy and connection. That we, that we must be connected to it. Yeah. We can't ignore it. And that we don't have a, an option of turning away. And that, that the kind of wholeness that comes from that, that, to be with someone else's pain, the compassion and to be with someone else's pain, on that, I want to, let's end with this, these lines from the end of 200, page 200, because as always, I think I'm 100% with you. And for people who are so inclined already to be in compassion, I mm. think the other is also true, which is don't forget to pull yourself out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because if we only get one message, right, people can sink into where the exact opposite of where they should be sinking. And so... It's like, again, just the practical importance of this is self-assessment. Everyone needs to be doing their own self-assessment to say, where am I mired and where do I need to be going? Yeah. Um, too often, women, female-bodied people or people inclined more towards the feminine will get mired in compassion and forget to move from it. And the others, um, you know, men, uh, that more kind of historically dominant type, will get mired in the forethinking and forget compassion. And so when women hear that example, often it just sort of doubles down, right? Yeah. It doubles down on what they don't need. So on the end of 200, you know, I think Jung makes a fine point of this. He said, um, the hero strives after the utmost in the pure principle, and therefore he finally falls for the serpent. He says, if you go to thinking, take your heart with you. Yeah. If you go to love, take your head with you. Love is empty without thinking, and thinking is hollow without love. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's one of a place for me where I think he does a good job of naming the opposites instead of just getting mired in, in, uh, you know, one or the other. Man, somebody suggested we should make these longer. And, uh, you know, again, I'm feeling today like, yeah, okay. Maybe. So, oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, all right. We we're back with all of you. Anne, I see you. We're ready for you. I have the word, and the German word is what I thought it was. It's Vordenken. So the forethinking is an exact translation of the German word, but it doesn't mean the same thing in English. Our word forethought comes closer to it. Uh And I had already checked the notes, and they'd said predetermination or foretelling the future, but that's not what Vordenken means. And then So I kept trying out the word wisdom this past week, but wisdom is too much Sophia, it's too feminine. And Fordenken really means a very spacious thinking ahead, like forethought, opening the space. It's really opening the space of awareness. And at that moment, I realized what it really, the best translation for it would be our contemporary word, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if, and if you go through and you read many of those pas- those passages, like the one that says, forethinking is the procreative, it's very positive, even though it's masculine. And if you read that as mindfulness is the procreative, love is the receptive, that really reflects what the German word would mean, except that that word didn't exist in Jung's time, but that's what he's getting at with that. That's yeah, all. Thank you. Thank that's you. Awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think about it's interesting to think about spacious thinking as as more horizontal. You know, as rolling as rolling out space. It's not prophetic. It's really it's really reflective. Yeah. It's awareness. It's open. Yeah. But it's still thinking. Yeah. It's such a huge point. There's so many questions of the translation. In fact, maybe, you know, I used to work with the translators of the Red Book, and I've thought a number of times about trying to get them to come in. So I may, maybe we'll do that. Um, Because I have so many questions, you know, how they made certain decisions, and that would be really fun. So thanks, Anne, for that. Who else? The tentative people often are bringing forth the most critical questions. You just don't think it. You don't think you have the the important questions for us. Hi, Claudia. Well, I just had a thought that came to me um, that he said that after World War I, people were going to kind of start waking up. But I can't remember if there were any of that happened. You know, when he was talking about his dream and then and the blood flowed, and it was horrible, and we all embraced it all, we all saw it all, we experienced it all, and through that suffering would be this entry into. I think that part of what is difficult for all of us is the time scale that I think Jung understood the time scale that he was talking about on some level, which is, you know, there was a time, there's a famous story of a, of a I think it maybe was Robert Johnson. I I don't remember now. We may have spoken about this, but somebody brings him a dream of people constructing a temple. And he says, oh, well, that's the dream of the coming religion 600 years from now. 
you know, that he had some fundamental sense that what we are doing is a very, very long process of the transformation of consciousness. We want it to be better so that we can, you know, finally have some relief from this shit in this lifetime. And hopefully we all do, right? I mean, it comes in waves. But I think for Jung, he was very clear that this is an extraordinarily long process of the transformation of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he also, there's, there's um, some kind of prophecy that he had that the time we are in would be another wave of this horror. Um, that when he was dying, he said something that's kind of, Von Franz has spoken about it. There's other moments where he said 50 years from now, I, I don't even want to know what's happening you know, to, to people 50 years from now. So, you know, starting around 9-11 and this whole period is kind of what we've all been living through, which is seemingly endless natural disasters, right? Global warming. I mean, we all know we don't need to recount it, but it's such a heavy moment that we're in. I guess I want the glimmers. (laughs) And there are glimmers. There are so many, right? But that it's not like, oh, we're done now. Thank God. (laughs) Carol, do you want to add? I think we have Trudy here, too. Yeah, I just oh. very briefly, to your point, Claudia, I looked up the, what, the previous cycles of Saturn moving from Capricorn to Aquarius. So it was in 18, 1873 before Jung was born in 75. In 1932, which of course is right after the, a worldwide depression, you know, that out of a, a serious contraction came an expansion, you know, Federal Reserve, Social Security, I mean, in, in our country anyway, then in 1962, you think about what, what, what was happening in 62, 91 and 93, and now today. So it's, it's not two steps forward and three steps back, but it, it's this idea of, and of course, this is a smaller cycle in relationship to much, much bigger cycles of which, you know, 2019 and 2020 is the end of and the beginning of a whole lot of major cycles. And so... As I said, other human beings have lived through times like this, just none, none of us. Diane. Yes, Carol, when you were talking about movement between the left brain and the right brain, or say facts and feelings, and that's how the snake moves, you know, back and forth. And I thought that was, that's the third principle. Um, yeah. And again, it made me think of Fauci and Burks. I've mentioned this before, where we have a male and a female, we have, they're scientists, and they're filled with compassion. Mm-hmm. And we're looking to them right now for the truth. I'm not sure I'm going to include Burks, I got to say. But. <laughs> well, I, I know she's taken some heat, but I, yeah. I try to appreciate the position she's in. Her um, history with AIDS is troubling to me. But anyway, I hear, I hear that symbol. You know, um, when she talks, though, and she talks about the responders, and she thanks all of us for the cooperative work we're doing. I feel she feels that, that she really does care about us and our health. Um, And I also wanted to make a suggestion, something I did since the last salon. Um, You were talking about changing. If we change our attitude towards something, it can change something. So I thought about how I could change my attitude toward the virus from a reactionary one to a relational one. So I did some active imagination this week, and I just want to encourage people to do that. And I have a little journal called What the Virus Might Be Saying, and it's very rich. Um, I I just want to suggest that to people that it's surprising what comes up 
that you didn't know you were learning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I think that's so much, that's what Jung is talking about, is you have to go to your own experience and that you have to go away from the heroic to the personal. And I, I think about, I, I heard a news story the other day, someone was asked what, they, what he thought of, of how leadership was functioning, to your point about the doctors. And, and he said, you know, that he wouldn't comment about that, but that his observed experience at his local grocery store is that three weeks ago, maybe 10% of the people wore masks. Two weeks ago, 70% of the people wore masks. And last weekend, only a couple of people didn't wear masks, and the people who wore masks said to the people, please, you need to wear a mask. And I think the translation of responsibility from the hero that's going to save us and tell us what to do and arbitrate our experience to instead of functioning as I, to beginning to function as we from the I point of view is one of the really profound opportunities of right now it's still just an opportunity we still don't have all the pictures you know that 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 that's what's to come but that's a really interesting lived indication of of the possibility of the movement of this time yeah i mean it's such a huge element if we have no father to project leadership onto that we have to find leadership in ourselves And so I think, you know, there was so many people have spoken to this as much as many of us appreciated, respected, were grateful for Obama's leadership. There was a laziness that seems psychologically that may have unfolded for people because we were so glad that daddy had it. Um, And, you know, this is a vast generalization, but psychologically, developmentally, the irony is there may be something really profound that happens for each of us individually when we fundamentally know in our bones that there is no father in leadership, there is no leader. And when we deeply understand that, I mean, there's grief in it. And this is like any kind of breaking up. It's the developmental process of, of adulthood. Right. But when you just know, I can't rely on dad anymore, or I can't rely on my parents anymore to degenerate in that way we are forced into a different level of development. And it does seem like there is a shift. Again, we spoke about it in terms of the hero and all of that, but just such a shift of of psychological development that may be possible right now. And that isn't then about working on the shadow or working on the feminine or, you know, there's all these different ways to put it, but that there's a maturation that happens when we can't look to leadership to solve this for us. You know, Diane, the other point of the snake is so critical, and he he speaks to that a lot, this moving between the yes and the no, the right and the left. And he also says, like a drunkard, I couldn't find it. If somebody can find the line, he says, like a drunkard moving back and forth. You know, that the ego is like a drunkard moving back and forth. And again, the humanizing quality of this, if we if we want to project on Jung, this enlightened man, this, oh my God, he was so extraordinary and did all these things, but again, he's just, he experiences himself like we all do, which is, oh my God, I'm doing this again. I'm this stupid again. I ran into this again. I forgot again, like all of that humanizing quality that it just feels, you know, like a toddler, like we're just learning all of this over and over again. Thank you. I just have one last thing to say before we go. We might have another question too. Let's see what happens. All right. Well, I just, what my immediate reaction is Salome came for the head. Exactly. That's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. All the beheading images are 
shifting where does consciousness reside and where the heart versus right all of that energy embodiment versus the intellect first we have to shift from the intellectual perspective i know we have another question i can feel it there's something happening out there well can i just ask again with with salome uh, you said she is no longer blind when she when could you just repeat that part it's early on in the section resolution but um she regains her sight that after he has seen the the serpent's wrestling and um and he crucifies himself the serpent wraps around it, itself around her foot as if paralyzed salome kneels before the light in wonderstruck devotion tears fall from my eyes and i hurry out into the night like the one who has no part in the glory of the mystery that what has happened is she's regained her sight and i think what that is is that this part of him can now can see and when he first encounters her she's blind she he encounters her she's there and he's in a dialogue with her but she doesn't see and so i think that that's part of the significance of of um of, of the crucifixion is that it releases something in him to begin to participate much with 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 vision and i think that's what leads then to the art i think that's what the, what later on leads because now he can see something she can see something that could not see before can you just think about think about you know my own blindness you know what we turn away from or don't want to see or react away from and the process of being brought into something coming into visibility did that answer your question elen yes thank you thank you thank you hi leonora hi so just in amazing grace i was blind but now yeah. i see yeah thank you yeah yeah i think you know you, i've read a little bit of what young there's there is a footnote somewhere again of of i think in the 1925 seminar which you know if people are interested the philemon foundation published this really great edition of the 1925 seminar it was published elsewhere i don't remember under a different name this is called introduction to jungian psychology is the title of that but you, so so you can get the full text that's being quoted a lot in the footnotes for the red book Jung says I've read different things about the 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 meaning of Salome regaining her sight. I think they're all really reductive personally. I mean the way that the kind of I mean Carol everything you just said resonates very deeply with me and I can feel myself still chewing on that image and feel like it's not totally clear to me what it means. He says too and we read this on 206 he says love love is sighted pleasure is blind. Yes. And this becomes an important point of the whole book again is that what is happening is he's shifting from the kali image of the feminine to um a more embodied and full experiential version of the feminine i sort of think of it's not cat who did uma thurman play was it poison ivy uh <laughs> remember in batman like that's sort of how i also there's this sense of like this dangerous kind of ivy like it's another image that he speaks to kind of terrifying and dangerous version of the feminine that he's encountering there because she has been neglected avoided she's gone crazy we'll get there again in a couple weeks and by his turning his attention to that pleasure 
Um, and think of men again, who we have encountered a lot through the Me Too movement, this coming back into consciousness of a certain form of male psychology, not all, to be clear, a certain form of male psychology, um, in which the pleasure has kind of just turned rotten and, and is totally unconscious. That's also part of what I see as the blindness. It's not seeing the other. It can't see the other. It's just turned rotten. And so when he re-engages with that quality over this whole process and this whole experience, she gains sight and she gains a sense of, of humanness that is not there previously. So, but again, I mean, that's just my own sorting it all through. I think it, it doesn't seem to have a single clear symbolic definition to me. No, well, and it's interesting to think about Anne's definition of for Duncan as spacious thinking or, or, or being able to see broadly because maybe it's the beginning of, um, of another way, you know, not, not just that he was blind and now he sees, but that idea of, of as the serpent goes back and forth, something else is coming. So it's not just for thinking in the intellectual sense and a grasp of something, but that it's, there, there's more spaciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have one more question here with Mary. Hi, Mary. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for this. I'm really enjoying it. Thanks to everyone who's here today. I was just thinking of the um, death of the hero and thinking on a um, more global or collective unconscious level, whether the, you know, mythology of the hero is dying and, and that has been operating for eons and or centuries and wondering if, if that is the case, if there is, if there is no leader who's going to come and rescue us, then what might be the next operating mythology, dominant mythology in the collective that we can turn to? I think that I, I, it's, I, I think such an important observation. And I think that we're at the frontier. We're at the edge of it, you know, that now we can ask the question. You know, like what, what, what is, what are we responsible for? Not, not somebody's going to come and save us, but you know, what, what is my responsibility? What can I, what are the limits of what I can do? And what are the limits of what I cannot do? And how do I need to create a we instead of, of the separation? And, you know, I think about, there are so many amazing collectives it, it reminds me of the 60s again, actually. I think about the incredible, I have wonderful, wonderful clients who are living in collectives doing sustainable agriculture, um, cooperative farming and living with each other. And it's the next wave of what, you know, in the 60s was, you know, pretty primitive. And it really, um, you know, the, the sort of the weird glamour of Woodstock and, you know, Steve Gaskin's The Farm in Tennessee and, in Oregon, the Rainbow Family, and you know that 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 there that there are not only are there these wonderful historical, like w- w- there's another way to live. But th- think about all of the incredible uh, documentaries and films now about sustainability and how will we how will we feed ourselves? You know how will we um, g- come together? Think about 
the what the indigenous peoples have showed us and the stories that are coming out of indigenous culture that are have other models about and that it isn't that they don't have heroes it's that the heroes are always completely embedded in a tribal culture of of distributed accountability and responsibility especially the feminine so that's my sort of Again, you know, so the, the, these things sound, they sound a little hollow even to me because what we're in front of is so big. Yeah, Mary, I don't know if you were with us. I think it was last, was it last week or the week before where we may have spoken? I think Diane asked a similar question, but, um, but it's just meditating all of us on, on again, what, what is human maturity? You know, what is individual psychological maturity? And as a result, what is cultural, social maturity? what is maturing in our collective hero's journey when we are encountering suffering and, and disaster. Again, it's all the separation from the kind of original family from the original parents. Right. And I think for me, it's, it's the capacity to see ourselves and see other speaking of sight, right. It's the capacity to have insight. And this also Ian McGilchrist, I think, does a brilliant job of speaking to the right and left hemispheres in terms of eyes, of the capacity to have insight, literally, and external sight, literally seeing others, that when we see each other and nature, it's not just clouded with all of our projections and, um, and again, rotted interpretations of things, which shows up racially, gendered, with animals, with everything right that we fundamentally have an inability to see the external world because we haven't done our work so all of that for me it's how do we see ourselves truly and how do we see the world truly i mean of course carol i'm completely with you on sustainability and all that but we know of so many of those collective communities that have turned rotten themselves right so to me it's still the psychological i mean it just is here we are over and over and over and over again well that, that's really claudia's point what happened afterwards you know and and that, that i was rereading some stuff by james baldwin this morning and this was something he wrestled with you know about how far how far can we get in in this dark night you know and the responsibility to bring yourself to it over and over again he, James Baldwin, too, for me, spoke to this such so poignantly um, when he, he speaks about the touchstone. It's the exact same thing. He talks about the touchstone of, of self-awareness and therefore the capacities, particularly that white Americans have not done their own work and so don't have a touchstone of self-reflection to see what's actually happening with Black America. Um, it's an extraordinary. I mean, I, ugh, the, way he, the way he is sort of Jungian in his psychological understanding of this, to me, is really profound. So... Thanks, Carol. Um, okay, it looks we have one more, and we're going to go there, and then we'll end. So, Nan, again, are you you want to say something? Oh yeah, thank you. Um, I guess what comes up for me when I hear um, kind of, and I don't mean this <laughs> in an urgent way, but it's when I hear in others and in myself that rush for urgency, and it goes it goes back to that other person of Jung's time, T.S. Eliot, and what he wrote in East Coker about you know, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love for the wrong thing. And yet there is faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. And I think that that waiting, um, to me, is that maturing, you know, evolution has its own pace. And that if we, and I know that it's the urgency of survival, but at the same time, 
if we rush, we miss, we miss the development. We miss the opportunities for, for figuring out what the, what the plans of the temple are going to be in 600 years or something. Hexagram five, Carol. Yeah. Waiting is not mere empty hoping. Well, and you know, in it's Nan, thank you. I mean, I've really been thinking and, and doing some studying about pre-manifestation. Gwen and I are in conversations with a yoga master who talks about, I, I, this is not a familiar language or a process to me, but he ca- talks about Naad, N-A-A-D, and that there is the sound, and then there is the pre-manifestation of the sound. And that how do you live in the place that holds both and it requires that kind of waiting that that if you if you rush towards manifestation or concretization you miss the opportunity of in the moment of of knowing what what wants to be born or what wants to come in and um i forgot that about t.s Eliot. it's really lovely to be reminded and it's, it's, again, I think what Elijah is reminding Jung here, right? Stop rushing, stop wanting, stop thinking that you know what you're going for, you don't. And, and again, I mean, the I Ching hexagram five, I, the translation of, of calculated waiting, I like, um, of just, it's waiting, but it's not, it's not waiting in a limp way. It's waiting knowing that something is coming, but also not rushing towards it. It's just trusting and waiting, trusting and waiting. This is the I Ching for those who have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but it's an important point, Nan. Yeah, Cl- Claudia. Is, isn't that kind of like that same concept of foretelling that we were talking about, that broad, spacious, so we can see what's coming as well as, but we can see it all, you know, the process maybe. I don't know if it's the same thing it felt like it to me. Anne, what do you think? Yes, I, I was just going to say that, which is the same way you were using the word for, which is kind of, is exactly, is that waiting. It's the space of waiting so that the much bigger picture can reveal itself. So it's definitely waiting, that space. Yeah. In, in the German, hmm. forethought is the best one, but that doesn't really do it. It's interesting that he almost foresees a Buddhist sense of thinking, if you will, or mindfulness. It's such a rich thing to bring the translations in, and, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Oi, oi, oi. Carol, how you doing? I'm humbled. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank so you. This concludes um, the first book, Liber Primus. We've been in this small, tiny calligraphic text. This is the end, and this is, we're beginning Liber Segundus next week. And you'll see it starts, the text starts to get, Jung got a little tired, I think, of writing as tiny as it was. So it opens up a little bit here. And then we'll get into many, many images afterwards. So that's where we're going. Lots to do. Good thing we're all still in quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) All right, goodbye. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team, 
to Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast. <laughs>